Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Dana Slamp. Dana is the founder of Prema Yoga Therapeutics, an IAYT member school and the leading training facility for yoga therapists in NYC. She leads advanced teacher trainings at Pure Yoga in Uptown New York, Yoga Vida in Downtown New York, Three Sisters Yoga in Portland, Oregon, and the upcoming Ayurvedic Yoga Training at Pure Yoga, July 13th through the 31st, 2016. Dana is presented at Columbia Medical University, the Telluride Yoga Festival, and several times at the Yoga Journal Conference. Dana's unique upbringing in a family of ministers and teachers led to a lifelong pursuit of spiritual truth, first in the arts through classical acting and writing, through her legal writing as paralegal, and through the teachings of yoga over the past two decades. Prema Yoga Therapeutics training for yoga teachers and medical healthcare professionals can be found at premayoga.org. And for a list of local classes as well as national courses and international retreats, you can check out her personal teaching site at danaslamp.com. So hello, Dana. Thanks so much for joining Hi. us. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's kind of funny talking to you on Skype because we actually both live in New York City, but you're presently in Washington State, right? <laughs> Which is actually my home state. Right. Right. I'm right on the edge of Portland, um, looking into <clears throat> leading another training out here. Um, but really why I'm here is to see my nephews. Oh, excellent. <laughs> your, your family, your family lives out there. Yes. Yes. Um, my brother and sister-in-law here with their kids and then my uh, mother and father also retired in the area just outside of Portland. So I get the best of two States out here for at least a week. Amazing. Amazing. <clears throat> yeah. It's mm -hmm. beautiful there in the summer now. Oh, it's the most beautiful place on earth. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like London, you know, whereas it rains all the time. So when it stops raining, it's so clean and yeah. shiny and glorious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Try it in January and you might feel differently. <laughs> yeah, it can be a little dreary. I definitely know that. There's a lot of seasonal affective disorder where I'm from. True that. Yeah. So, so you know, talking about your, your family and where you're from, I wanted to first get started in just sort of exploring your story. And we're, we're going to have a, a wide-ranging discussion about all things yoga therapy today. But I wanted to start kind of by asking you about your own personal story, what led you to the practice of yoga, and then maybe you know, uh, write that narrative for us in, in relation to what specifically led you into then yoga therapy and the, and the kind of deep and, and, and wonderful work that you're doing, creating programs, uh, very rigorous programs, uh, uh, for yoga teachers in yoga therapeutics. Sure. Absolutely. I think as a teacher, Jacob, you know, you're always your first student, right. you know? Uh, so, these kinds of stories are always origin stories. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can get really woo woo and say that, um, in the, uh, the theory of karma that one chooses their parents. Mm -hmm. So the story really begins with us choosing the family that we're born in, which is a beautiful story. I mean, it's a beautiful origin story. And, um, in my case, having that perspective has, uh, allowed me to appreciate, uh, my origins even more. I was raised in this very, conservative Christian church. Mm -hmm. And, um, my father was, uh, from a long line of ministers. My, uh, maternal grandma, uh, grandfather was a missionary in Alaska and my uncles were in this family business, so to speak as well. And then everybody else is a teacher. Mm. So there was this, um, you know, I was raised in this family that cared very much about learning 
cared very much about spiritual pursuits, but also cared a lot about community and about the arts. I was taught very early on to play the piano and to sing. And um, when I finally discovered acting, uh, I was reluctantly encouraged to do that as well. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you know how it is. I mean, you want to act, it's, it's over. You know, the rest of, your, the rest of my um, college and grad school was all about proving that I could do anything. And therefore, I was going to choose to be an actor. You know, um, so I did that, but at some point in college, I, um, I was diagnosed with this tumor in my pituitary gland. Yeah. And this was long before, yeah, this was long before I had discovered yoga. So all I had really, uh, at my hands in terms of techniques were some that were very esoteric, like prayer, uh, very valuable, but not, not so tactile. Mm -hmm. And then Western medicine and, um, it wasn't uh, cancer. It was um, it was a type of organic tumor that just really messed up my endocrine system. Yeah. So I had to be put on uh, a daily regimen of drugs and go in for these MRIs. And it was sort of scary because, as you know, the pituitary gland is the hanging down thing of the brain. Right. You know, it's right in the center of your skull. Yeah. Um, and it had so much to do with with my relationship to myself to be sick when I was in college and also my relationship to being a woman, you know, this is the endocrine system after all. So after three years of taking these drugs, um, and being sort of finally coming to terms with the idea that it was never going to go away. Um, I opted for surgery Mm. and, um, the surgery was, was pretty cool. I mean, it's brain surgery that go in through the Dora. Um, but it wasn't like I had to get my head shaved or anything. It was just this it was a pretty progressive and successful surgery for its time. And this was all happening when I was like 23. Um, and I think even though, you know, it's probably the most Western thing you could do, there was a consciousness about it, uh, for me that I knew it was going to take a month of recuperation and I was going to take that time to get my, my health in order and to start to change my, um, my diet a little bit, you know, there was a creeping sort of consciousness and how I needed to take some authorship in my own health, but it was still predominantly a, a victimization or in reaction to this thing that had happened to me. You know, this thing that had happened to me was kind of outside of myself and I was man- managing that. So anyway, the surgery was more or less successful. And, um, uh, I went into a life. I, I went to grad school for classical acting and got to, got pretty lucky and um, was actually on a, a national tour when the symptoms came up again. Mm. The same symptoms that you yeah. had prior to the surgery? Yes. Wow. But in smaller form, much, much smaller form. So back to the endocrinologist, back to the experts, back to the MRI. And um, the good news was that the drugs had become a lot more easy to manage. You didn't have to take as many of them. Uh, It was a different type of drug, and it didn't have the same side effects, which were morning sickness. I mean, I was sick every morning of my grad school experience. So so I started on the drugs, and this kind of, like, regulated um, the side effects, but then I started to get curious about whether or not I really needed these drugs. 
And I found a very interesting, a really wonderful kind of laissez-faire endocrinologist who understood that this was not a life-threatening thing and that I could participate a little bit and help self-regulate. And so we played with going off the drugs for a while and it didn't really succeed. The same symptoms came back. Um, but then ultimately over a period of, um, a little bit of time, I'd say about two years, and this was a time when I was doing yoga, I noticed that when I was in a meditation sadhana, my symptoms would stop. Hmm. And my system would regulate. Hmm. So I became very curious. Yeah. Um, also, it was just sort of like a plant, this whole pituitary thing. Yeah. Because as you know, the pituitary is... It has this place of reverence. Right. Well, in, this is what I was going to ask. I was going to say, you yeah. know, at this time, did you realize how auspicious it was to have this kind of, you know, illness being associated with something that is, you know, in 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 the Kundalini awakening language is often referred to as the, you know, this the 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 site of the seventh chakra and the and the seat of enlightenment. So very interesting. Yeah. Interesting that you had this, you know illness that rested essentially in this place that's so auspicious in the seat of one's intuition yeah right in the seat of one's connectivity uh and right different um different schools will associate it with six chakra intuition and high reasoning or with seven chakra right uh which i'm sure you and i would be comfortable saying would be a connection to the universe or to a right. god consciousness uh, but if the language is different, this could be a connection to ecology, uh, to humanity, or to one's higher purpose or dharma, how you're going to leave the world. So, um, yes, it occurred to me <laughs> many times over in my yoga studies, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, the kundalini um, yoga therapy plays into my own education. Mm. Um, and... Um, Oh, I was just going to ask, I was just going to ask, actually, I wanted to like go back a little bit and ask specifically about how this experience with, you know, a, a very conservative form of Christianity played into um, your relationship with divinity. You know, I, for, I, I, I'm asking because I'm curious, because for me personally, I also, I also had a very similar sort of background. I mean, I didn't have a, um, mm. a family member who was a pastor, but I was raised in a very um, uh, religious, um, a very um, uh, Lutheran, you know, conservative Lutheran family. And for me, I kind of lost all sense of mm -hmm. of divinity because because the sen because that idea of God had become so contracted, had become so narrowly defined. And and for me, you know, some of my own awakening and healing was really opening up again to to what divinity could be, you know, which, which, which of course started in, um, in my yoga philosophy study. So I'm curious sort of that, that aspect of the story, you know, how did your experience, how was your experience of God, um, affected and how did it change by, you know, the juncture between your Christian upbringing and your yoga experience? Right. Well, I passed through the I think one of the things that helped was I passed through the rubric of the arts first, which is another way of feeling one's spirituality. Right. And I think people like you and I, and I don't know, maybe this is 
too self-congratulatory, but I think we're very, very important right now uh, because the world politically and sociopolitically is very bifurcated into conservative and and moderate. And when I think of conservative spirituality or conservative uh, religions, I think of them as the narrow path. Mm. And, and um, Krishnamurti had this beautiful, beautiful quote about spirituality. And, um, you know, he kind of left the conservative Indian spirituality at the time or the, the organizations that he was groomed into being in to say things like this, which is, there are many paths to truth, but truth is a pathless land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And far too often in my, my tradition of birth, um, the means to truth were mistaken as the truth. Yes. And yeah. this can lead to a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the literal reading of the scriptures can be very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the outside... Uh, you and I might identify now as liberals or moderates. From the outside, we know that some of our friends and, and colleagues perceive the narrow paths of the religions as being rather evil, which I think is unfortunate because yeah. in those narrow paths, there are so many true believers. There are so many truly righteous men and women. And if you ask me to look inside my crystal ball, <laughs> which don't worry, that doesn't exist in yoga. But um, if, if we had one, I would say that what's next for the conservative um, Christian religions, uh, I hope, is a return to mysticism. Yes. Yeah. Is a return to using both sides of the brain, mm. not just the part that likes things quantitative and literal, which can actually be based on fear. Right. Right but that is open. Mm. Um, this is, I mean, in my lineage, is one of the greatest love teachers that ever walked the earth. You know, uh, this, this Christ-like way of looking at the world. And when you start to see the way that my career has panned out, I've been pretty conscious about integrating in <clears throat> love-based teachings um, into the business while still remaining true to the evidence-based side of our trainings and remaining true to, to the philosophies of yoga. So let's, as we go through, I'll try to point out, and I'm sure you'll even see where it crops up. Yeah, well, I mean, let's get into that then. So, you okay. know, because I think that one of, one of the things that is really um, wonderful about the work that you're doing is that you really are integrating well the the Eastern philosophies with the Western um, medical developments, um, mm-hmm. but then you, but then you also have, you know, criticisms of, of um, uh, a, a sort of purely or reductive Western way of approaching um, medicine or healing. So mm. let's go to like, let's go to the philosophy of healing first and talk a little bit about that sure. and why an integrated approach might be so important based on this idea or this philosophy of healing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing is um, in yoga a lot in America, we talk about the mind-body connection. And this is a bit of a misnomer, Jacob, because the mind and the body are not really ever separate in the philosophies of yoga and Ayurveda. Um, If I ask you to define yoga, what would you say? 
What's probably one of the first words that would come to your head? Oh, the most popular word is probably union. Right, mm-hmm. right. So we could say union of the body and mind. Um, we could say union of uh, the left and right, right side of the brains. We could say union with that um, large connectivity. Um, but in the West, we've really been dominated by this Cartesian view of the self, mm-hmm. which is, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Right? Um, so this is a little tricky. I mean, it's allowed us to make massive, massive uh, inroads in our knowledge base. But the downside of that is it's saying that our existence depends on our thoughts. Totally. Which is extremely traumatic if you're coming out of a trauma or you're suffering with anxiety, depression, mixed anxiety and depression, you know, if you have a mental disorder, to say that your existence depends on thoughts, or worse, that your identity is defined by your thoughts, can be incredibly crippling. Yeah. But in Samkhya philosophy, which is the main philosophy that grew up alongside yoga and Ayurveda, it says that we are the Atman. Mm -hmm. And the Atman... You could probably say better than I can, Jacob, but just for the, you know, for the sake of this conversation, I would call it the soul. Right. And that the, the soul came from the whole. Mm-hmm. It came from that grand collective consciousness, um, that grand universal organization. And we have an ego when we pass through into this life, um, when the soul meets body, according to this philosophy. But the ego isn't so evil as it is in, in the Freudian or the modern pop psychology sense of the word. Right. It's an entirely other thing. It's the ahamkara, right? And the ahamkara is like the conditions of your birth. You know, it's, it's your last name. It's your gender. It's stuff like that. But it's not you. Right. Uh, you are sat. You are sat chitananda. Mm-hmm. So sat, the compound Sanskrit term, sat meaning truth and chit meaning consciousness, Okay, so our thoughts are in there, but also Ananda, which is a bliss. It's the totality of bliss. So in yoga therapy, whether someone is managing a body imbalance or a mind imbalance, the return in the embodied philosophy is the same. Because if we say that you are not your thoughts, then you're not your emotions. Right. And you're not your pain. You're not your pain either, because pain is output from the brain. Mm -hmm. So there's many different types of pain. What we usually think of as pain is nociceptive pain. Like if I if I pinched you, you would feel a sensation, right? Mm. The tissues send information to the central nervous system, wings up to the brain, and the brain sends back pain to the tissues. But in the case of certain traumas or chronic pain, you're still feeling that pain, and there is nothing wrong with the tissues. This happens all the time in yoga therapy. People show up and they say, the doctor says, it's all in my head. Mm. Well, in a way that's true. It is all in your head because pain is a function of your brain. But it's not true because you didn't make it up. Mm -hmm. I see you. You're in pain. I hear you. Let's see if we can find another way of you showing up that isn't painful. Mm. And this is where mindfulness, any type of mindfulness, any type of breath work can be deeply valuable. 
to find the space between the pain, to identify to something else, to find a part of the body that is not in pain, to circumnavigate this synaptic pattern, which in our philosophy is to say a samskara, mm-hmm. right? A mm-hmm. thought pattern, to circumnavigate that and to find another way of being. But you see, if it really is a body injury, the yoga therapy is also very similar, right? Because if you're not your body, then you're not your disease. Mm. And if you're not your body, you're not your injury. You have a bum knee. You're not your bum knee. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but people come in with huge stories about their bum knee. Oh, I'm getting old. Oh, it's my fault. Oh, it's, you know, it's... Uh, my behavior's fault. It's my job's fault. Well, actually, you just have a bum knee. <laughs> you know, right. get, a, get a diagnosis. Come back. Let's see if we can move it. Let's see if we can move the synovial fluid and the tissue and everything else we would do in a healthy uh, um, perspective. But anyway, um, well, it seems like I mean that's it's... I think the first take. Yeah. 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 Well, and that seems to be what you're saying is really great because it it feels uh, especially. Um, prevalent in the case of, you know, psychological illness where someone can have, you know, depressed states of mind or anxious states of mind and the the sort of status quo looking at it, you know, in the way that you're saying this um, this Cartesian mindset is is to think I am a depressed person. It's a it's a it's a form of identification where where, you know, part of the complex is that I only know myself to be that that depressed person. I have somehow become invested in my identity as being depressed. Therefore, part of the suffering is the suffering of losing that identity almost. So it's sort of this double-edged sword where on the one hand, it's, it's this, it's this state, you know, this persistent state of depression that it's, it's, is itself painful. Mm -hmm. And then a compounded on that, you know, the possibility of further suffering because to leave it behind would be its own kind of suffering. Is that a little bit what? Yeah, we're you nailed about? it on the head. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and I'm sure there's listeners that identify. And that was the second part of what intrigued me about yoga therapy, having suffered from anxiety and depression, and having had moments of grief that lasted way too long, and not being able to manage them completely with talk therapy, um, right. but finding that the yoga was an amazing complement to talk therapy. Um, and what do you think the la- and and that- talk, what what is talk therapy? And this, of course, is generalization. I'm sure there are some mindful based practi- talk therapy practitioners out there. But in general, if we were to generalize, what what would talk therapy be missing in this kind of um, in this whole sort of holistic healing approach that we're looking at? Right. I can only speak uh, personally and as a yoga teacher and therapist, since I'm not a licensed, uh, you know, therapist, I should really disclose that. But when I see um, when I see our licensed social workers and talk therapists come in and learn the techniques and bring them back into their practices, Mm -hmm. usually what they bring back first are the down regulating techniques. Yeah. So the down regulating techniques are pranayama, meditation, yoga nidra, um, withdrawal from the senses, mm-hmm. and certain types of asana. Sometimes restorative, but that does not always work with anxiety or grief. Uh, sometimes yin, and sometimes a mindful 
Deshikachar based slow flow. So just on my way here, just a little bit of yoga history. Krishnamacharya is the father of modern yoga. And to talk about how yoga therapy and, and modern yoga differentiate, we should say that for the most part in Krishnamacharya's career, he practiced yoga therapy, yeah, which is does. to say one-on-one yoga, yeah. not group yoga. Do you mind if I get into that? Oh, please get into that. But first, oh, okay, but first cool. I just want you to explain what down-regulating means for anybody that, oh, out sure. there that doesn't know what that means. Okay, great. So uh, just a little primer on the nervous system, since nothing's really changed since the beginning of time <laughs> in the human nervous system. Uh, we're very adaptable, but in regards to our nervous system, we're not. Uh, we're really set up for uh, two sides of our autonomic nervous system uh, to be um, moving in duality. One is always winning. One side is the SNS response, the sympathetic nervous response, and that's the fight or flight response, uh, which worked really great on the savanna, right? Yeah. If you and I were out picking berries and we heard a rustle in the bushes, we would need that response. Yeah. What happens, right? We, in the sympathetic nervous system response, we, we take a little bit of air, we're holding it in our upper chest, our eyes, right, widen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, physiologically, uh, our immune system stops, right? There's no, there's no energy to the immune system, which right there, that should be a big ding, 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 a big, big indication of, of how yoga could help with um, the healing process. Mm-hmm. Um, the fertility system, it's not working. Digestive system, not working. And that's another big bell, of um, how we need to downregulate out of this SNS. Um, in Ayurveda, they say that all disease stems from the digestive system. Oh, really? So anyway, back to the banana. Yeah, it all comes from the gut. Wow. <laughs> bold, right? Yeah, the bold well, I mean, statement. It, it's, it, it definitely says that we should be careful what we're eating, right? Well, when modern science uh, shows us that we have just as many neurons in our gut mm-hmm. as we do in our brain, which it's important amazing. to start taking yeah. note. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, though, through the vagus nerve, that is um, that is a communication system that only goes up. Mm. So we can't say to our digestion, work better. Our only way in is the respiratory system, is the breath. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to the bushes, right? There's that rustle in the bushes. We're picking berries. <gasps> we have our moment, right? We're ready to to fight, to kill a gazelle if we eat meat, um, or to run, to run from the lion. And then what do you know? It's a little bunny. <laughs> so what, right? So what do we do in our tribe? We laugh. Yeah. We laugh, which is the laughing helps balance the diaphragm and it down regulates the nervous system, particularly the vagus nerve, which is sending 70% of its information up to the mm-hmm. brain and very little information coming down particularly from our cognitive mind, right? So cognitive therapy, sitting and talking and telling a story and repatterning your trauma has been found to not be enough necessarily. And that's where, yeah, that's where a lot, I mean, this is a broad thing and I invite listeners to go and to research this on their own and to not take my word for it, but to start looking at the somatic psychology that's out there how well they're using mindfulness and yoga 
to manage trauma and its side effects. It's really cool. Wow, that's that's like it's so fascinating with this explanation that you're giving of the directionality of you know the two brains essentially the gut moving up and 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 the brain moving down and and I don't think I've ever heard it expressed that way and it really does kind of give so much legitimacy to practices of the breath based on what mm. you're saying rather than you know thinking that you can kind of reformat the body just by thinking in a new way. Mm. Or that, you know, that maybe chitta vritti, you know, that we, this concept that we have where we're, we're looking to cultivate new, you know, essentially mental vibrations, we could mental think of, patterns. Yeah, sure. we can think of that in this, in, in like mental patterns that are created via the breath rather than thinking, I think traditionally we think of it just in so, something that happens in the brain, but there could be something that's sort of like reformatted through the breath, a chitta vritti that sort of, um, is is translated into the body through the breath. I don't know if that Most makes certainly. sense, but it's just sort of something that I'm experimenting with in my mind at the moment. Mm. But it's, what you're saying is really mm. amazing. Well, can I take it a little further, Go for Jacob? It. Yeah, because this is one of the first paradigm shifts we want to see from our students, no matter where their profession takes them. If they're a social worker in a in a hospital, or whether they're just like you know a yoga teacher working at the local gym, can you start to see? the mind as something outside the brain. Yeah. And the first thing I ask them is point to your mind, right? And it takes a moment. And then we point to our mind and eight out of 10 people are pointing at their brain. Yeah. yeah. But your brain is not your mind. And this is actually, you know, this is the pathless land of truth, Jacob, because you have your path and I have mine, but we've ended up at the same point of truth that this is embodied philosophy, mm -hmm. that the philosophies, uh, philosophies of yoga, that the psychology of yoga is in the body. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not saying that, that say muladhara, the, the root chakra really, really exists. Okay. That like you would cut open the body and find a chakra. <laughs> we're seeing certain neural points though, that were some of the first, this is the first place where the egg split into different parts, right? This is where it began. And we could relate it, let's say, to put it in Western thought, to the base of Maslow's hierarchy of need. Yeah. Right? That if these needs aren't cared for, other things will happen. And in the embodied philosophy and psychology of yoga theory and practice, you're not, your mind is not just your brain. Your mind is in your body. Yeah. And this is doubled down by, by innovative Western psychology. This is just straight up Basil van der Kolk. The body keeps the score. Yeah. Right? Um, and I hope it's encouraging to any uh, movement person to know that if you do create a deeper diaphragmatic pragmatic pattern of breath, that you are providing a down-regulating system for the central nervous system. So I think to go around, Jacob, I should go back to the other side of the coin, right? We talked about fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And so now we should talk about the, the other part of the nervous system, which we can call the rest, digest, and heal response mm -hmm. of the nervous system. So in my early scenario, we're laughing. There was a bunny in the bushes, right? Mm -hmm. We're laughing. The diaphragm starts to down-regulate the vagus nerve. We let out the breath, 
we stop that breath pattern that the anxious person has of holding the breath high up in their chest and we start to bring it down into our belly. Mm -hmm. And then things start to come back to homeostasis and that is an act of down regulating. Mm -hmm. So that happens naturally. And a lot of people benefit from it. I mean, a lot of people are really good under stress and they sleep really well at night. But what hasn't changed is our body has not adapted to repetitive or chronic stress. We live in a world where there is always a rustling of bushes. Yeah. There's always a cell phone going off, right? There's always somebody advertising to us. Yeah. There's always a screen on, and this is not helping our nervous systems. This is not helping with trauma. It's not helping with getting us rest. Because remember, if you're in a state of chronic stress, your immune system is not functioning. It's not working at high functioning, nor is your digestive system. Mm. So yoga therapy has far-reaching effects for many imbalances. Fertility, too. Circulatory system, you know, can you, can you get your heart rate up? Right? That's the big deal in health. Everybody wants to go to the gym. They want to get their heart rate up. Absolutely. You should do it. You should do exactly what they say to do, right? Which I think is like, oh, man, I'd have to look at what the Heart Society says. But I think it's something like two hours of cardiovascular, or an hour and a half, I think, a week. I don't have that in my notes. Sorry. No, but are you, able, are you able to turn your heart rate down? Mm. Or... Are you walking around this world with low levels of adrenaline and cortisol in your blood, which is precursor to many chronic diseases? Wow. People are having a hard time calming down. And when they don't calm down, they don't heal. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the therapists are bringing in those down-regulating techniques, those techniques that we've been given through yoga that can help calm the nervous system. Mm. Yeah. That's incredible. So I wanted to ask, actually, this is sort of a tangential question, but I, I, I'm just curious, are there, when you're talking about laughter as being a, a deregulating um, uh, experience, is there, is there any um, literature or research about the health effects of laughter? Is that something that you, that you know anything about? Oh, well, there is laughter yoga. <laughs> I can't quote. I'm pretty sure there is. I'm, I'm pretty sure that there, there is... Um, there are some studies. Um, there, I think there was an anecdotal one where this guy was, was really sick and he just watched comedies <laughs> all day. <laughs> but I'm sure there's some better evidence out there than that. Um, but also Jacob crying is also down-regulating too. The diaphragm also bounces. Yeah. But if you're crying all the time, it just doesn't work. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So then back to, so we were, I, I remember before I, inter, I interrupted you, asked you to go on the down-regulating um, thread. You were going to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about um, Krishnamacharya and and his approach to yoga. And you, I think you had sort of a, a stream of thought that you wanted to go on. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, there's a little bit of, um, there's a couple misnomers that happen when we bring yoga to the rest that to the West, excuse me, are not misnomers. I'll say um, miscommunications that I think need to be clarified. Um, let's say there's many 
different ways of categorizing yoga, but let's say that there's actually three types of yoga that's practiced in the West. Mm-hmm. The first is called Vyam, mm-hmm. and Vyam is, it translates as exercise. Okay. It's a yogic exercise. And this is what's predominantly taught in the West. Right. However, when you go through teacher training, um, the teacher trainings here in the West are very, very short. Very short. Yes. They can be as short as three weeks, you know, where Krishnamacharya studied for seven years with his teacher in the falls of the Himalayas. Mm. Plus he had however many degrees, I think four at least, maybe six. Yeah. But anyway, after a month, you're taught how to lead a good yogic exercise class. Yeah. And usually the down-regulating aspect is there. Because remember, yoga is union. Mm-hmm. So I would argue... If a class is only exercise, if it's only getting your heart rate up or building strength, but it doesn't bring your heart rate down in something like a shavasana, I would question whether you should call it yoga at all. Right. Okay? Just going to float that out there. Yeah. Um, Consider it. Okay? Just at home, folks at home, think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I want to make sure I don't get too preachy because then... And I stopped being a yoga teacher, right? Um, then the second type of yoga, and this might be the one that came here first, is upasana. And upasana is yoga for spiritual practice or discipline. Uh, so it could be a yoga for personal transformation. When it's in a daily practice, we call it a sadhana. And we have um, a lot to be grateful for here, uh, whether your path is to be um, an atheist and a yogi or whether you have some spiritual language around your yoga practice, ultimately we can be grateful historically for the way that these techniques were preserved by those who felt very strongly about them because they were doing them for spiritual reasons, for Apashana. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the stories are littered with people who did yoga for other reasons too. You know, uh, you can do yoga for power. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, uh, in its whole form, we find that it usually leads back to, to a personal transformation. And a lot of people find this in exercise classes as well. And then the third type of yoga that you see here that for some reason, I don't know, maybe because it can't be done all the time in a big general class, is yoga chikitsa. Chikitsa means medicine. Mm. it's yoga therapy it's the precise application of yogic techniques for healing and disease management and this is what Krishnamacharya predominantly taught wow yeah especially I would encourage yoga aficionados and teachers to go back and to read the biographies read his son's biography Deshkachar's biography read the A.G. Mohan biography and hear about the way he worked one on one with clients, because this is our birthright, just as much as, say, the primary series is. Um, and both should be celebrated and applied when needed the most. But because yoga is union, it's sometimes hard to tease one of these types of yoga out from the other because they can be uh, intricately linked. But I think what's important for us as teachers and for those that um, will be getting uh, yoga therapy accreditation 
is that we're very clear about our intention mm. so that those that really need healing can seek us out. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking to do is not necessarily to uh, privilege one over any other, but rather to see these as, as kind of a three-pronged aspect of a, a more holistic practice. So on the one hand, we have our, you know, our yoga exercise, we have our sadhana, and then we have, which, you know, some people would, I suppose, consider their exercise part of their sadhana or a component of their sadhana. And then, and then we have, you know, this more prescribed, individualized uh, practice that's more therapeutic. Is that kind of the idea that all of these are, are in, are working yes. together? Mm -hmm. In the yoga, uh, in the yoga, excuse me, in the yoga culture. Yes. Okay. Uh, in the personal practice, I would hope that everything is yoga therapy in a way that when you go for your exercise class, that you seek out a teacher, uh, that honors the downregulating effects of yoga, yeah. uh, that understands that's an integral part of your practice, sure. whether you're in the most challenging, uh, class or not. Mm -hmm. And you can find this, I mean, you can find hot power teachers that will, still have the personal transformation and will have therapeutic effects according at least to season or time of day. Yeah. Um, obviously hot power isn't right for everybody, yeah. but it's still there. I would thread it through, but, um, the word healing actually is our second point of potential confusion that I wanted to clarify mm -hmm. because, um, the definition of healing uh, comes from um, an old English base, how, which means whole. Mm. Healing is being whole. Mm. And in the West, when, when there were times of confusion and there were shysters, certain laws were made um, that false claims could not be made by healers. And this is very easy to follow in yoga. But for those of us that understand that a practice of union, well, isn't that being whole, right? Yeah. Then our practice can be healing. It's not necessarily saying, in fact, it's not at all saying that we are making claims that we're healers right. because we're not. And I'm not just I'm not saying that according to Western law. I'm saying that according to yoga theory, philosophy, and practice. The ability to heal and to become whole is in your student. Yeah. Always. Yeah. So you never diagnose. Right. And you never even treat. You don't even treat. If I could say you do anything, I would say you empower. Mm -hmm. You empower the body and mind to heal itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something, that's kind of the legal side of things, but I think it's important to note um, that when we're, teaching yoga or providing yoga therapy, that's all, all we're doing. We're not saying that we are the healers because we're not, and we never have been. We're giving the student empowering techniques to take some authorship in their healing so that they're not in reaction like I, I was. Wow. Happened to them. So that's very... And if there was ever time... Yes? No, go ahead. Well, if there was ever a time that the world needed it, it'd be now. Yeah. Do you know that three out of every $4 spent in health care are spent on chronic diseases, preventable chronic diseases? Mm -hmm. One in two Americans have a chronic disease, 
So that is a preventable disease that came about from their own actions. Mm. So it's really about what Ayurveda says, health depends most on what you do every day. How are you changing your actions to take some authorship mm -hmm. in your health? Mm -hmm. It's never saying, I don't think any of these complementary or alternative medicines would say, don't go to your Western doctor. Go to your Western doctor, but on the other 364 days of the year, what are you doing to be a healthy person? Yeah. Well, and that seems to be the, you know, what's sort of missing is that, you know, the we, I, it's of course the tide is changing, but you know I would definitely was raised in a family where it was like, you know you get Ill, you get sick and you go to the doctor and and the doctor was kind of like, it was like God, you know like do, the doctors knew everything mm. and they and and that was the one stop shop where you went and and there was no sort of eye toward any kind of like, um, uh, you know embodied practices that you would do every day. There was no kind of. And that and that seems to be the the, mm -hmm. the issue is that you know doc, Western doctors of course we've gone so the technology is incredible and they can do amazing things, but the, at the end of the day they're they're technicians and they're specialists, but they're not you know they're not necessarily giving us the tools to live preventatively you know they're not you know my brother yeah, has, they're my brother too, has, my brother yeah, has Crohn's disease and 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 he and, and no one ever no doctor ever talked to him about changing his diet i mean it's really bizarre <laughs> i don't even know if there's a diet class in a lot of uh medical schools it's you know? wild yeah yeah um and that's why the entire system's broken that's why we're 39 in healthcare outcomes um in terms of uh, world cultures, uh, world countries. Um, but if we do our part, you know, as individuals, um, then everything gets better. Yeah. And there's some amazing stories about where yoga and mindfulness have been integrated into, um, medical communities with huge, amazing results. In fact, I just, um, I dog-eared one I wanted to share with you. Uh, it also involved, um, cognitive therapy too, interestingly enough. Um, let's see if I can get to it here. Sorry, bear with me if you're listening. No worries. Um, where are you? I love this study. Oh, here we go. Uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, Benson Henry Institute. Let's see, they had over 15,000 people participate, and it was from, um, it was over a decade. It was about, let's see, it was eight years. It was over a period of eight years. Um, it was a mind body intervention course or program mm -hmm. uh, which combined meditation, mindfulness, and involved social support, which is something we do really well, I think, in the yoga community in general as opposed to just like, you know, going to a, a core class. Yeah. Um, and then it also had cognitive therapy involved. And it was all there to cultivate the relaxation response, mm -hmm. um, but also to cultivate resiliency in patients that were managing chronic diseases. Yeah. So after these, um, these people had been <laughs> in the program, this is crazy, you have to look this up, uh, the utilization of the hospital decreased by for the people that were in the mind body intervention by 43%. Whoa. Yes. Wow. They went, they went to the emergency department 1.7 times a year, as opposed to 3.6 times a year. 
and they went to the lab 43% less, and they had imaging, so any kind of radiology, 50.3% less. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge study. It's over a long period of time. Uh, but aren't, and there, it's, yeah? aren't there financial, like when I hear that, I think, you know, because we have a, a profit-driven healthcare system, are there people who are losing money because these people aren't going as often? Um, or are we it saving depends money? On who you okay, I'll tell you who really likes uh, these stats. Um, the uh, some of uh, the insurance providers, right? Uh, the so president of Aetna, yeah. The president of Aetna is um, uh, is a meditator, and what? he's done some. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's done um, some programs within his own business. Um, I don't know if he's expanded those to his providers. Um, uh, or, or to his clients. I'm not sure. Um, and hospitals love it. Um, there was a study out. I had this at my hands, but I, you know, everybody has an encyclopedia in their pocket. So (laughs) I trust you'll look it up if you can find it. But a neuroscientist emailed me once and said, what is the deal with this study? Um, I'm paraphrasing that says that if you do yoga, and mindfulness and breathing exercises in the hospital, you're released a day earlier and use half the pain medications or something like that. You know, so hospitals really like this data. Mm -hmm. Hospitals, insurance providers, big pharma, not so much. Right. Although big pharma is very happy to put a picture of somebody doing tree pose on on their ads to sell their antidepressant. Yeah. (laughs) So they're very happy with stealing the images and the um, the techniques of our culture in order to sell their own product. Right, right. But um, I'm not really sure if they're if they're interested uh, in in how yoga helps. Um, you know, the U.S. is about five percent of the global population, but we use seventy five percent of um, the global prescription of opiate consumption. Wait, how much percent? 75. 75% of the opiates on the on Earth are consumed by 5% of the population? Of the prescription, prescription opiates. Oh, my yes. gosh. That's yeah, and prescription drugs kill more people than illegal drugs. So it's there. I mean, please research it yourself. But... Um, and like, I mean, I'm openly disclosing, I take a prescription drug, you know, yeah. um, but I take it less because as I do my work, yeah. I do my meditation I do my yoga. And ultimately this uh, one hopes will prevent me from getting a chronic disease. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot in the medical community that love this work. Uh, there's great studies out of UCLA that yoga and mindfulness can increase the length of telomeres. Um, Dean Ornish has showed like a reversal of, of the effects of, of heart disease in his mindful, uh, programs, which involve both diet and yoga, right? Everything I believe should be seen as part of the whole, yeah. both individual and part of the whole. And our own faculty member, Dr. Lauren Fishman has a great study out that was just in the times about, about five months ago about, uh, a daily yoga practice, only about 
15 minutes reversing the effects of osteoporosis. Mm, wow. So there's, yeah, and it's going to be growing. You know, um, we're never going to have the amount of money that uh, pharmaceutical companies will have for research. Um, but I think that this research is important for those um, who, who need to see who need to see the data. Although I really want to say almost in the same breath that yoga is individual and it's an experiential knowledge. Right. So I understand why some in the yoga community say this shouldn't be a medical protocol. Mm -hmm. I think with the data and with the research, we can start to have what I like to call yoga therapy guidelines. Yeah. Okay. So I know that these techniques work with this type of imbalance. I'll start there and I'll see what the in individual client needs. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, Yoga Alliance for a second because there was a, a recent decision that was made by Yoga Alliance and I knew you had very strong opinions about it um, where Yoga Alliance decided to um, take away or, or rather said that they would no longer allow um, programs certified through Yoga Alliance to call themselves yoga therapy programs. Um, mm -hmm. So, wh what was the incentive behind this? How did this happen, and what is the what are the issues surrounding it? Well, I think the issues are predominantly legal. Mm -hmm. There might be some other political undertones of it, but um, those aside, I think we should first address the legal issues. Yeah. So, we talked about the nature of the word healing and that it, at its root, it stems from, um, becoming whole, mm -hmm. right? And we see that in the philosophies of yoga, but in the U S because of, um, um, bad apples mm -hmm. and a couple centuries of misleading people claiming to be the healers, not even saying that they're in powers or healing or anything like that. But, um, the word healing is pretty much owned by the Medical Care Act, mm. at least in our state. Um, and it's only for use um, by licensed medical health professionals. And that type of regulation is absolutely necessary, yeah. I think. I mean, in retrospect, if I could turn back time um, and, you know, be an educator 120 years ago or even 80 years ago, um, I'd like to see the word healing being one that's given to the client or the patient, but that's not the case. That's not the way that the law is written. Also, I think that the Yoga Alliance thought that there would be some false claims out there. You know what I mean? That yeah. people would be saying that, um, that they can do what they can't. And it's funny because the International Association of Yoga Therapists is, is pretty precise about this. And, um, it's pretty clear, and it's actually become clearer that yoga therapy is not going to treat or diagnose any more than dance therapy or music therapy would treat or diagnose, right? right? Mm -hmm. Or a massage therapist. And, you know, that to me is common sense. But I, who knows? I think the Yoga Alliance was looking at a, a situation that was getting a little out of control. Right. Um, so they made some sweeping choices uh, without consulting their members. Um and ask that certain words be taken out of trainings um, and ask that a, a disclaimer be posted if their name was used. And the argument there was that it was protecting um, the members of the Yoga Alliance and the yoga community in general. But if you read the disclaimer, it's it seems to be mostly protecting the Yoga Alliance. Mm -hmm. 
So the thing is, though, I mean, to be completely fair, to protect the Yoga Alliance is also to protect the Yoga Alliance members, which remember the Yoga Alliance has now become an industry standard. And there's plenty of people who have studied for three weeks or, or one month who can now call themselves yoga teachers. And the Yoga Alliance was trying to prevent you know, this broad use of, of certain terms that legally you can't use. Right. Um, so I really respect that part of the decision very, very much. And I think it was something, uh, that probably needed to be done. Yeah. Um, but there's other ways of going about this, Jacob, and there's many different ways that, um, yoga therapy can continue its promulgation and its use, um, without, um, including those who are registered yoga teachers, which is to say they have paid to be on Yoga Alliance's list. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is already happening on a broader scale. The U.S. Army hires yoga therapists. So those yoga therapists that work at U.S. Army bases, that's, that's what's on their tax return. Wow. So the U.S. government honors that as a profession. Um, and if you look at the, the history of, say, homeopathy, okay, let's look at um, uh, this, this separate complementary and alternative medicine of, of homeopathy. Uh, they chose not to be licensed or regulated by the government, mm-hmm. um, and they're under the Medical Freedom Act. But the Medical Freedom Act is only in 11 states. Uh, so, yeah, in that profession, they really have to manage their language as well. Yeah. Um, but this is all good. We should never have, um, like I say, the, the loss of the word healing is, is sort of unfortunate, but it's more of a philosophical loss. As long as we're empowering our students to take some agency in their healing, sure, there's going to be a group that will be called yoga teachers and they will likely have less training. Although there may be some that have extensive training in that group. And there's also going to be a group of yoga therapists and that's going through a grandparenting um, process right now. Our grads are in the process of becoming um, certified yoga therapists with IAYT. And I think that this, I believe this deeply serves the public as well, Mm. because it can say this person has studied for two years, has gone through, as opposed to like two months or a month, uh, they've gone through a comprehensive training. They uh, know how to integrate with licensed medical health care professionals. They know how to speak to your doctor. Uh, They know how to interpret what you tell us from your doctor, and they know how to modify um, in my opinion, yoga therapy is preferring that PNS down regulating technique aspect of yoga, uh, more often than say a general power class would. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says that they have some experience with managing those who have a, a chronic illness or a disease or They've worked with, say, a lot of times we get referrals from PTs that are like, look, the health insurance is done. This person needs to have, you know, a continuing um, 
physical practice. What can you do? And um, I think when you say yoga therapy, I mean, these are just my subjective opinions. I think, too, you're saying that you're, you're also bringing in the mind aspect. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a yoga therapy program that doesn't involve meditation, yoga nidra, and mindfulness. Right. Now, both of these emerging professions organically come from the East, I believe, but are practically being honed to improve our communication. We're really only as good as our communication, right, Jacob? Yeah. And yoga, wherever you find it, and even if your teacher has just come out of school, there's great teachers that just come out of school. Yoga is still going to be a great form of exercise for you. But if there's like a, if there's an imbalance, you know, if there's disease, if there's injury, um, if there's a mental imbalance, or if we need to work with licensed healthcare professionals, I think you're much better working one-on-one with a yoga therapist. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds like a, an exciting time for yoga therapy. It sounds like a time really of evolution and, and really a clarifying of, of, you know, what sets apart uh, a truly kind of well-trained and integrated yoga therapist practitioner versus, versus, you know, somebody that might throw it around. And I think that, you know, you were right to mention, um, that, that I think Yoga Alliance was responding to kind of a pervasive, I know that I've seen certain yoga teachers claim themselves to be yoga therapists. And, and I know for a fact that they haven't gone through any kind of rigorous training. And so mm-hmm. I do think there was a, there has been a very loose, um, you know, throwing around of that word, which is is perhaps problematic, and we don't want to, you know, cheapen what that designation means. We want it to be something, um, you know, rigorous and meaningful. So, you know, thank so. you for going uh, through that. So, we're sort of ending ne- near the end of our time, but I want we wanted to end on a on a story, which um, mm. <laughs> uh, is the story of Vishvamitra. So, do you want to take us on that little narrative journey? I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, I was just thinking about what I'd like to talk to you about. And we did all, we did our stuff, right? Um, yeah, we touched on a lot. Yeah. But um, I'm just really taken lately by this story of Vishwamitra. Uh, it came up actually in a sound therapy training because uh, Vishwamitra discovered the Gayatri mantra at the oh. moment of his, um, his epiphany at the end of the story. Huh. Um, and you remember I said that a lot of people use the techniques of yoga historically for many different things. Um, a lot of times they use it for power. And Vishva Mitra began that way. He was a king, actually. And uh, he was a pretty good king. But his era, I mean, his area, his country, I guess we could say, his dominion, was suffering from a drought. And they had a really bad harvest one year. And um, Vishva Mitra went into the forest, this is probably outside of Rishikesh, and he was with his men, he was with a, a, a small army, and they were looking for game, you know, to feed the army. And they came across um, the cave of Vashista. Now, Vashista is a sage, and um, his title is Brahma Rishi. Mm-hmm. Brahma Rishi means a sage of the highest order. And Vashista... Uh, was very inviting and welcoming to the king. He says, come, sit down. And Vishwamitra, the king, um, 
he said, oh, no, we do not miss, we do not mean to disturb you or we don't want to cause, you know, undue strain on your household. And we see you're just a rishi. And Vashista said, no problem. And he called forth this cow. And it was this magical cow that provided this massive, massive feast mm. for the army. So everyone sat down to eat. And, of course, Vishwamitra, the king, is starting to hatch a little plan. So he sits next to Vashista, the sage, and says, listen, I love this cow. I understand that it's given to you, I'm paraphrasing, um, through your powers. But wouldn't this cow better serve humanity if it were in the hands of a king? After all, we've had a terrible harvest. We're in a period of drought. I feel that you should be bestowing this cow to me for the good of the people, Sri Vashista. Well, Vashista wasn't going for it. He said, no, this type of power can only be held by those who have spiritual attainment. So Vishwamitra, the king, he ups the ante. He says, well, you know, in a time like this, I can easily get an emergency mandate from the courts and I could seize your cow. And Vashista says something along the lines of, go ahead and try. <laughs> so the army starts to pursue in the forest. They start to pursue this cow. And of course they can't catch it. And they get more and more frustrated. They look like idiots in front of the king. So finally the king says, catch the sage, catch Vashista. But he would dematerialize in front of them and they couldn't catch him either. So then the king got very angry and asked his bowmen to shoot arrows, to kill Vashista in order to seize the cow. He's in complete, you know, let's say sympathetic response. Yep. <laughs> He's going in a battle. So the bowmen take aim. They shoot at Vashista. And Vashista takes his staff and he turns it, right? He turns it sideways. And the staff swallows up all the arrows. And Lord Vashista says, is that enough, good king, or shall I swallow up your bowmen too? And of course, Vishwamitra is incensed, but he leaves the fight and he goes home to the palace and he understands that his power is meaningless. Right? It's really the spiritual guy. It's this Brahma Rishi that has the real power. And he decides, that is the power I'm going to pursue. So he leaves everything. He renunciates. He leaves his crown. He leaves his home. And he retreats up into the Himalayas himself to go into an intense period of sadhana. And it's said he did pranayama. I'm sure he did some asana, but mostly to meditate. A thousand years go by. And his meditation gets so adept that it starts to draw the energetic attention of Indra, the god of the celestials, the king of the celestials. Now, it's kind of funny because in these old stories, the gods are, are like not necessarily godly all the time. Like this Indra guy, he's kind of like the comptroller, you know? <laughs> he's just in like the, the organizational head of the cosmos, but he thinks that his power is going to be usurped. So what does he do? He sends a beautiful celestial woman to dance before uh, Vashista in his meditation. And it works. 
He comes out of his sadhana. He marries the woman. And they live in this connubial bliss for some time. Just totally chilling, full honeymoon period. And Allah, Vishwamitra remembers his meditations. And he, he kind of misses that feeling. He misses that calm. And he tells his partner, this beautiful woman, I'm going to go meditate for a while. And she immediately gets very suspicious because she works for Indra. What do you mean? Where are you going? Keeps pestering him and pestering him until Vishwamitra gets a little suspicious and starts questioning her. Where exactly do you come from? Where did you grow up on the earth? Who's your parent? Until it escalates. He gets very suspicious. Who do you work for? This kind of thing. At which point she immediately disappears. Well, Vishwamitra thinks, I must have been tempted. I can't believe. You know, he's just full of guilt for leaving his studies. And he goes back to meditation. And so Indra tries it again. But when he tries it again, Vishwamitra is on to him. A beautiful woman appears. And Vishwamitra uses his spiritual power in the story to turn her into a rock. But at this time, he's, yeah, but he's incredibly depleted and has to go into another intense sadhana in order to build up his spiritual power. So in a nearby land, there is this other king, King Trishanku. And King Trishanku was getting pretty long in the tooth. He was getting really old. And it was his desire that he ascend to the heavens in his bodily form. So he had gone to Vishista. Remember him, the guy with his staff? Mm-hmm. Um, yoga practitioners, Vashistasana, that's the staff, yeah. right? That's the side plank. That's Vishista's staff we're making with our bodies there. So this other king, Trishanku, had gone to Vishista and asked him to help him ascend in bodily form. And Vashista said, absolutely not. This is against the divine law. I will not do it. So the old king is pretty pissed. But one day, someone comes into his court who says, actually, there's another sage who's very powerful, who's growing in great, great power. This guy, Vishwamitra. Aha, King Trishanka thinks, I'm going to go and ask this guy. So he sends someone to ask Vishwamitra if um, he'll help the king ascend. And Vishwamitra was in his meditation, but he could still hear the messenger. And he responded, not at all. He wasn't going to take this earthly bait, right? Until the messenger said, Vishista tried it, and he couldn't make it happen. (laughs) So now Vishwamitra is like, that guy, that freaking guy. He's in every story. I'm always up against this guy. If I did this public act of helping King Trishanku ascend, I will be known as being just as great and powerful as Vashista. So he travels to the court. People hear about this. There's this huge fire ceremony. Like everybody in the kingdom's there. People have come from other kingdoms. And sure enough, Vashista can use his spiritual power to help King Trishanku ascend. And he's getting into the heavens Right? He's almost up to the place where people can't come anymore 
when Indra figures out that this is happening. This can happen. It is against divine law. So Indra starts to press the king down. And Vishwamitra is about to lose face, right? King Trishanku is now pummeling down towards earth, and he's certainly going to die in his earthly form there. So he once again uses his spiritual power to prevent him from going all the way down to the earth. And so there, King Trishanku is caught. He's caught between heaven and earth, and everybody's watching, and it's like this spiritual standoff. Uh, at which point, Brahma has, uh, has uh, compassion and turns him into a little celestial sign, which is uh, still in the uh, it's a little constellation, and uh, it's still marked in the skies today. That's supposed to be King Trishanka, where he's been turned into a constellation instead of hovering uh, just above the earth. Wow, what an amazing yeah. story. I'm not even done. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Okay, okay, sweet. So anyway, uh, instead of um, celebrating his, like, half victory, Vishwamitra um, is dismayed because he's fallen trapped now to the ego and to the outward um, attention. So he goes into his sadhana again, and this time he really sticks to it, and he becomes so adept that Lord Brahma, the creator uh, wants to honor him and make him a Maharishi. Mm. And he does. He makes him a Maharishi. But he says, Vishwamitra, you could become Brahma Rishi. You could become one of the most knowledgeable men the world has ever seen if only you would go to Vishista and bow at his feet and ask for your blessing. At which time, all those years of denying his envy and his anger come up again. And he's like, that guy. It's always that guy. It's always that Vashista guy. He's always stealing my honor and my power. I have to go to bow to this guy? Oh, I'll go to him, all right. So he goes back. He travels back to the cave. And he's right next to the cave. And um, Vashista actually has a wife, and his wife shares his, uh, his knowledge and his um, spiritual balance. And they're talking inside the cave. And she says, are you really going to honor this guy? And Vishwamitra's listening. They're like, he's like, what guy? What? Is it me? What? And Lord uh, Vashista says, absolutely. Brahma himself has honored him, and I have sent him every challenge. Indra has sent him the challenge of lust. I have sent him the challenge of greed. I have challenged his ego. I have challenged his pride. And he's always returned to seek true spiritual knowledge. Mm. Of course, I will honor him. Mm. And there's Vishwamitra listening to this outside the cave, holding a rock which he had intended to kill his teacher with. Mm. And suddenly he's overcome. He's overcome with gratefulness and compassion, but that's not the first thing that shows up. Instead, he is overcome with self-loathing. With self-loathing, he becomes the martyr. He's overcome with guilt and shame. And he takes that rock and he starts hitting himself with it. He starts killing himself with a rock. And Vashista and his wife hear this, 
and they come out of the cave. And finally, they take that rock from him. Vashista takes that rock from him. And it's only then that Vishwamitra can be overcome with compassion and humility and gratefulness and honor and bow at the feet of his teacher. Mm. And that is the moment he was given the mantra. But in this old story, this fantastical, mystical story of one of the greatest teachers and one of the greatest students, I think there lies a teaching that's at the heart of everything we do. Whether you are a new teacher that's just come out of your 200-hour training or whether you've been studying for 20, 30 years, we always arrive at this deep lesson, this deep challenge. And I think the challenge to overcome self-hatred and self-loathing is not just the last lesson, but it is also the first. Hmm. Because Vishvamitra had really loved himself. Why would he need to challenge spiritual authority? If he had really felt comfortable in who he was, why would he need the power? Why would he need the accolades of others? Why would he need lust in the care of someone who was not his true spiritual partner? Hmm. Why would he need the public accolades? Mm. My feeling is in my long life as a student and my long life of teaching Westerners that many of us are in this trap, whether our challenge is health or whether our challenge is whether or not we can do a crow pose. <laughs> there comes in this aspect of good person, bad post person, a victim or martyr, where we pick up the rock. We have a, a crazy couple of weeks where we slide off from our yoga practice. Who knows? Maybe we party too much or we eat too much, whatever our shtick is. And we pick up the rock. I think that prema, which is translated as divine love, but is given as a technique in the mantras, in the sound therapy, as a way of identifying with divine love, Right? The classic mantra here is aham prema, I am divine love. Mm. I think that prema is in that act of taking away the rock, of taking away that rock for our students and saying, I understand you're goal-oriented, but you're not your goals. I understand you're sick, but you're not your sickness. And I understand you're sad, but you are not your sadness. You're something far greater than that. You're a part of the whole. And the act of healing is returning to that wholeness, both as teachers and as students. Wow. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful story, Dana. Thank you so much for sharing that. And the teaching that comes out of that, I think, is really powerful and such an excellent note to end on. So, you know, lastly, I always ask this. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to 
to share um, what you're working on. I mentioned a little bit in your bio at the beginning, but things that are coming up for you, you mentioned Prema. Prema is the name of your uh, Prema Yoga Therapeutics. That's your um, your company or your training program, your training um your training organization. So if you want mm-hmm. to tell us a little bit about what you have coming up in terms of trainings or workshops sure. or anything else, and then share your website and all other ways people can get in, in touch with you. Yeah, sure. Well, our trainings are, um, they're like a one room schoolhouse. We, um, open them up for students, uh, also for medical professionals and training yoga teachers as well, you yeah. know, just become a better teacher. So through that, we work with a yoga Alliance, um, a school, this great school, Pure Yoga. We teach at Pure Yoga, and then the next training will be the Ayurvedic Yoga Therapy training, which will be a little bit more of the esoterica, and that's all found at prema-yoga.org. Okay. Um, I'm also leading a um, Ayurvedic intensive with Allison Kramer down at Yoga Vita in September, and some therapeutics at Three Sisters and at Yoga Vita uh, coming forth in January. Um the Ayurvedic yoga therapy this uh, July 13th to 31st will definitely involve that self-care, that putting down the rock <laughs> yeah. and starting a discipline that is to your health. So I'm really excited to do that. Um, everything in Ayurveda is in context, right? So we'll be going to the park a lot because <laughs> oh, it's summer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, take a look out for the Three Sisters trainings. Uh, we might have one coming up in fall. And just reach out to me. Um my, um, you can reach me through danaslamp.com and, um, there's a comprehensive training there, uh, a list of trainings, uh, and retreats too. Um, we're looking to go to South Africa, Jacob, in March. yes, awesome. maybe I mean, talk about transformation to see the animals is such an amazing act. So we'll see that might be in March. Uh, take a look out for it. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dana. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I think we talked about a lot of really interesting and illuminating things, and there's a lot of jewels of wisdom in there for our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Hi, everyone. Well, that was our interview with Dana Slamp. I hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about Dana and her incredible organization, Prema Yoga Therapeutics, check out Prema P-R-E-M-A-Yoga.org. And for Dana's personal website, DanaSlamp.com. 